We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences, so the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying that you heard about Indeed on this podcast. That's Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. This podcast episode is brought to you by Coors Light. These days, everything is go, go, go. It's nonstop hustle all the time. Work, friends, family expect you to be on 24-7. Well, sometimes you just need to reach for a Coors Light because it's made to chill. Coors Light is cold lagered, cold filtered, and cold packaged. It's as crisp and refreshing as the Colorado Rockies. It is literally made to chill. Coors Light is the one I choose when I need to unwind. So when you want to hit reset, reach for the beer that's made to chill. Get Coors Light in the new look delivered straight to your door with Drizzly or Instacart. Celebrate responsibly. Coors Brewing Company, Golden, Colorado. Welcome to the Arsenal Vision post-match podcast. This is Mean Lean from ArsenalVision.co.uk. Hello. Um, apologies for any funky sounds you can hear in this part of the recording. Currently recording this in Asda Car Park. Just been to visit the in-laws in Aylesbury. And uh, the missus and the kids have gone into Asda to buy some important ingredients like cereal and stuff like that. I'm going to record this part now because I won't be able to do so later on. So um, any car sounds or children screaming and stuff then I apologise in advance. Premier League football is back after the international break. Arsenal just smacked Liverpool 4-1 at the Emirates. Wonderful game. Uh, as I mentioned on the blog it was my most enjoyable game of the season so far. I worried about the game before it started and it was for no reason really because we were fantastic. I was a bit concerned you know international break and stuff and um, you know we'll play Liverpool who needed to win the game to stay in the Champions League race and they be hungry and all that, and all that sort of jazz. But we flew up the traps, and we were the, we were the team who looked hungry and and um, and played wonderfully well. The way that we approached the game is, is exactly how I, how I enjoy us playing. When we're, we're we're pressing from the front, not allowing teams to settle, and then we're pinching the ball, and then we're playing the ball really quick. Our little interchanges between Santi and Ramsey and Özil and Alexis, oh, majestic. Majestic, and we should have we should have scored early on. I'm sure many people worried, like myself, that when we didn't didn't score the early goal, that the game might swing the other way. Um, and I did have a good chance as well with Sterling and and Markovic, 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 yeah, something like that. And um, yeah, his pass was a bit rubbish, wasn't it? Really, 
And uh, Sterling couldn't slide it into an open goal. But these things happen in these big games, you know. Uh, it wasn't the best marking. I think both Mertesacker and Koscielny were marking one player and they allowed that guy, I think it's Markovic, um, free on the right hand side of the box. But, you know, as I said, in big games, you know, big teams with good players are going to create chances. It was a good pass to put him through. And um, he, he should have done better. But you've got to take your chances. Ramsey had a great chance early on as well to score when, when he was cleaning through. His left foot shot wasn't really powerful enough to beat Mignolet in goal. But, um, yeah, we did get the first goal. We deserved it. And um, a great goal by Bellerin as well, cutting inside and left foot curling it. I can't see Baku Sanya doing that. That's the bonus of having having an attacking player at right back. And he cut inside and he curled it brilliantly. And after that point, we scored our three goals in quick succession, really. Ozil's free kick was quality. Apparently, he was practising it in the warm-up. And Alexis's goal was, was just wonderful. The whole move was, was amazing it's at such speed as well. He just smashed it above the keeper into, into the roof of the net. Glorious. And Drew, as always, finding a way to get his goal at the end. Bits of pieces happening in between that. I'm going to go and hand you over to the guys. Enjoy the podcast and we'll be back for Burnley. Arsenal play well in victory, an important football game. Funny opening takes holiday weekend break. My name is Elliot Smith and you're listening to the Arsenal Vision post-match podcast coming to you almost directly after, as far as you know. The uh, glorious 4-1 triumph at home over Liverpool uh, in nearly a reversal of the humiliation we suffered last season. But why bring that up? You know what? Pretend I didn't. Uh, We are going to break down every aspect of what was an excellent victory for Arsenal and continues a phenomenal winning run on the way to a domestic double. Uh, I am joined, as ever, by two more eloquent, erudite, and sophisticated individuals than myself, if that is even possible, and I will introduce them now, because that is the job of the host. The first is James. You can follow him at GoonerFanatic49 on Twitter. Uh, James, uh, happy holiday to you. Happy Easter Monday to you, Elliot. Thank you very much. There's really no such thing as Easter Monday in the United States of America, um, because in a truly capitalist society, one must work all the time and take no holidays. Uh, But that's a topic for a totally different podcast. Uh, I'm also joined by a man who does many things in his pants. One of them is Poznaning. You can follow him there, Poznan in my pants on Twitter. His name is Paul. Paul, good Monday to you, my friend. Woohoo! And an Easter, happy Easter Monday to you. And Easter Monday is the anniversary of the Irish uprising, removing the British from our country or starting the process thereof. So there is an Easter Monday where, where people who know their history exist. Exceptionally alienating introduction to this podcast. Um, uh, we'll just call it Monday. How about that? Uh, you've got all kinds of weird holidays like Boxing Day and Easter Monday and things that people get to celebrate. But here we just have to work Woo-hoo. for a living, which is why at uh, 10, 12 a.m. Eastern time on a Monday, Paul and myself, who live in the United States of America, are recording a podcast and not working. So I'll just shut up and continue with the podcast. Um, if you missed it, you should go back and listen to our season review podcast that we posted during the interlull. Uh, it was exceptional. I'm not saying that. The New York Times reviewed it as such, so I'm just quoting them. Um, But we did develop sort of a a new technique of scoring the argument. We scored the debate. Um, It it was a little rough around the edges. James and Paul did tie at the end of the podcast. I swooped in with a late victory. 
Um, we will attempt to do the same. The rules are very simple. If you're familiar with the game of football, you will know that three points for a win, one point for a draw, no points for a loss. We'll follow that same tradition today, and we will start with the lineup in formation. Um, going into the game, there was doubt over Danny Welbeck. And so then there's always the question of whether we should play a natural winger like a Theo Walcott or pack the middle of the park with all of our tricksy technical midfielders, move Ozil out wide, at least nominally. That's never been my preference because I don't think it's worked this season, but that's what the manager went for. James, what did you think when you saw the lineup, uh, in particular Ozil, at least uh, appearing to be played out wide? Um, well, it was Ramsey, really, that appeared to play out wide. But I... Well, I sorry, let me rephrase. This. I meant when, when you saw the lineup, you know, my perception, sure. you know, because we played that 4-1-4-1 formation in the past and Ozil would have been the wide player. Well, I mean, I've talked about this in previous pods and it's actually a lineup that I've been anticipating seeing and one that I've been excited to see um, purely because I think it incorporates uh, the best attacking players we have all on the pitch at the same time. When I did see the lineup, I, I mean, I agree. I did think it was Cazorla probably playing in the ten and Ozil out wide. But as ever, if you have, if you look at an Ozil heat map, it's pretty difficult to tell what position he's truly playing since he's often coming out to the left and he's coming out to the right, and he'll pick up the ball deep sometimes and obviously occupy spaces um, centrally outside the box too. Um, but from a lineup point of view, I think I'll be honest. I had expected Welbeck to start purely because the last time I predicted this lineup. Wenger went with um, Danny, but that might have partly been due to the fact that Danny was coming back from this sort of slight groin injury. Um, but that being said, I do think this is the lineup that Wenger has been probably thinking about using for a little while and hasn't really had the opportunity to do so given injuries and the like. Um, I think it worked out extremely well. I was, I put, I mean, as is clear, I was I was particularly content with it, and you could see from the off the way in which we were able to press with Ramsey out out on right, which I'm sure Danny would have been able to provide too. But also, of course, his efficiency and his distribution and his ability to retain possession against a side such as Liverpool, who I think we probably would have expected to press us a little bit better than they did. Um, but to also a team that are quite technical, that pack their midfield and have three centre backs and the the two wing wing backs, I think it was important for us to be able to hold and retain the ball especially in their half of the field. And that worked extremely well right from the off, especially in that first 10, 15-minute period where we had a couple of chances, the Ramsey one in particular. Um, outside of the attacking five or six, I was a little surprised to maybe see Mertzsäcker at the back um, just because of the pace that the likes of Sterling have. And when Sturridge came on, um, you could see throughout the game that Sterling looked to, to really sort of tie into Mertzsäcker's side um, of the two players, which meant that Koscielny was sometimes dragged over to Mertesacker's um, side of the field in order to recover from him on one or two occasions, um, which is partly what led to Markovic having so much space for that um, that that opening chance for Liverpool. Um, but that being said, Mertesacker did have a good game, and obviously we now find ourselves in a position where we can almost complain about the Mertesheny axis, which has uh, proved to be so important for us over the last couple of seasons. So, um, yeah, I mean, all in all, it wasn't that much of a surprise. Um, I think maybe we, you know, 
a lot of people going in, like myself, may have expected Ramsey to um, have not started with Welbeck outright. Yeah, I, I think the thing with Mertesacker that's so difficult is of our three center backs, he is the best tackler on his feet, um, and I think he is the hardest to dribble past. And so you worry about him getting beat for pace, but when we're defending a little deeper, which we've done at times this season as well, and you think about a Sterling dribbling at any of our three center back possibilities, you know, Koscielny, uh, Gabrielle, and, and Mertesacker, I think Mertesacker is the most dr- difficult to dribble past. The one who would be most effective handling players like a, a Sterling or a Coutinho who can sort of trick their way past a center back. And, and I thought Pear did pretty well not getting beat that way through most of the match. Um, what about you, Paul? When you saw the lineup, did you have concerns about the formation, um, about the fact that really we didn't have a, a true wide player? I mean, Alexis also tends to drift inside. Are we happy to see sort of what you might say is just our best talent on the pitch, the best 11 we can put out there? Uh, well, certainly I fell for the, oh, this is going to be Ozil on the left yeah, trick. Yeah, I did and, too. <laughs> and I do think there's a big difference between Ozil on the left and in the center. I know he drifts out to the left, but I don't think that's the same as starting at the left or even rotating with Kazorla. So I did think it was going to be a big factor. Turned out he was playing at the number 10 spot and he played really, really well. So um it, it's certainly an issue uh i wasn't surprised uh, i was maybe surprised that today was the day but i wasn't surprised uh wenger looked like he was going back to a 4-1-4-1 although that wasn't quite what happened uh, i thought it was really interesting i mean think of all of the the debate and abuse uh or just discontent at seeing ramsey playing on the wing historically you know, a year and a half or two years ago, whenever that was, when he was trying to play himself back into form. And here he was out on the wing. We played well. He played well. I mean, it was kind of radical um, and made for a a fascinating tactical encounter. I thought it, it was really interesting seeing the two managers and quite a number of the players both talking about how important it was for Liverpool to get a fast start or rather for us to stop them getting a fast start and doing to us what we actually ended up doing to them so it was kind of a blistering first 10 or 15 minutes but I think we ran out of puff at some point and we got into a lot of trouble when we didn't transition back to being tighter in in defending ourselves and there was quite an interesting ebb and flow of the game from that standpoint yeah Uh, go ahead uh, the the other tactical decision, though I wasn't surprised by it, was the Mertesacker one. I mean, it, to me, it had to be Mertesacker at this point, just in terms of personnel and their standing in in the the uh, in the packing order. But where I've been pretty critical of Per in the past, a, obviously he did really well in this game. If we talk, if we look at that, I think it was the Monaco game at home where uh, we played a high line. He went way up the field chasing the striker who dropped deep and got nowhere near him, got beat, and they scored that goal. I think we talked about that one at length at one point. Mm -hmm. He did that numerous times with Sterling this time, but was right on him, was probably the best guy to be on him because his his stand-up, his pressurizing, 
you know, is right with Sterling when Sterling dropped deep. Kishelny covered uh, Sterling getting past him and running around, which actually never happened. Uh, and in the first half, it was really Mertesacker versus Sterling. In the second half, it was really because Sturridge had come on, Sterling pushed a little wider. Uh, then it was Sterling against Bellerin. But in that first half, I thought Per did excellently, even though he was, if you like, very exposed and high up the field, managed it really well. Apart from that one time, Kishelny got pulled over and Markovic went running through the middle because nobody in midfield covered him. Kishelny dropped off to double-team Sterling, and that was one of those times where we didn't have our... Our uh, our co- our cover got br- blown, I think, very very badly. Yeah, I, I think the interesting thing is that when we saw the lineup, we would have assumed that it was a four one four one because we've seen that tried this season, especially with that personnel. And if you look at sort of the heat maps and and just the eye test, the way the game played out, it was almost more like a four two three one. Um, Cazorla's heat map was deeper, more around the midfield stripe. Coughlin, obviously, as well. Um, but Ramsey, Ozil, and Alexis, interestingly, they show up all over the pitch just at about 20 yards out. And I think Ozil's position could best be described as go wherever you think there's effective space, Messit, because he showed up everywhere, on the right, on the left, in the center. He dropped deep at times to receive the ball from Cazorla and Coughlin. He was running down the flanks at other times, same with Ramsey, same with Alexis, um, all while with Giroud kind of standing right at the center of the 18-yard box with everything pivoting around him. And it was really, really effective. Um, we didn't really have width per se. Obviously, the fullbacks could provide that, um, and, and we saw that with Bellerin for the first goal. But Liverpool really struggled to track that that free three behind Giroud. Um, I think the opening points are going to go to Paul there, uh, comprehensively answered the question, and um, I think just really the spirit of what I was looking for with his answer. Yes. Um, so we're, we're going to give those to Paul. Oh. Uh. Yeah, it's, it's, it's an early disappointment for James. It's 3 nothing. We'll see what happens from here on. Well, like Arsenal, I had a very strong first 10 minutes, you, which you, really... It's hard to lose it once you go one up. You, know you got I mean? out of the blocks early, um, yeah, and, yeah. and you do have ho- uh, home pitch advantage. So oh, you know now so. you can sit deep and defend your lead. Um, so early pressure, Ramsey chance, Cazorla chance, James. We came out of the blocks flying. Let me ask you this: What do you think was the reason for our fast start, <clears throat> and were you concerned? that at about the 15-minute mark, we hadn't gotten the goal that our dominance probably deserved and warranted? I mean, the reason for the fast start was, first of all, we were clearly well up for this game. We're a team that's brimming with confidence at the moment, which is um, exemplified by the consecutive wins we've now had at the Emirates and our current run of form outside of the uh, Monaco and then I suppose the the Spurs game about a month or so back. Um, but also the way in which we shaped up. We've we've been a team that is even away from home at the beginning of games has looked to press high up the field. It's a big reason why a player like Danny has been integral to the squad. You know, the energetic and um buzzing like attitude of Alexis Sanchez. And you know, I mean it even goes down to partly why someone like Theo doesn't really get into this team anymore. Um, because we're 
now a team full of 11 players that have such a strong work ethic and, and work so well from front to back. Um, so the ability to play Ramsey, who um, in himself is such a high level of stamina, is able to you know, you know, constantly put in a shift to go backwards and forwards. And I think, you know, may, I, obviously I'm slightly detracting here, but I think it was even interesting to see that Cazorla was maintained in that um, deeper position that we often so readily associate with Aaron. And part of that again was just his ability, his speed, and his his his, his constant propensity to um, to put pressure on the centre backs that Liverpool had, who clearly, especially without the likes of Skirtle, um, struggled to um, to maintain possession and, and play balls through the lines, and they looked really shaky at the back for the first ten minutes. And I thought we executed that excellently. And of course, what we were missing really was that finish, in particular from Aaron, um, within that first ten minute period. So, yes, I mean, I was a little tentative because we've seen it so often before. Um, I started extremely well, especially perhaps at home. And you talked a little bit, I think, about the United game, for example. And it's hard to not completely push those out of um, your mind. And, this, of course, when, that Mark, when Markovic runs through and has a simple pass ready for Sterling to tap in, that obviously changes the complexion of the game somewhat if we do end up going 1-0 behind. And you maybe, as, as an Arsenal fan, you do get that feeling of same old, same old. But, of course, within that 10-15 minute period, it's also epitomised the way in which we ultimately in, you know, played throughout the rest of the, the fixture. And I think even then, moving forward, as soon as we got that first goal, we just we, we looked the dominant team throughout. And even when they pegged one back... I. I was never really in any doubt. It, we were we were excellent, really, ultimately from start to finish. Aside from that kind of ten fifteen minute period where Liverpool looked to get a bit of a um, the handle of the game. I have to admit, as I watched it, um, I was pulling my hair out that that we hadn't scored, and when Markovic was put through, I literally said out loud, "Goal!" You know, because it, you just assumed that that was how it was going to go again. But the story of our season, especially the successful parts of our season have been scoring first. We've scored a lot of early goals. We've taken a lot of leads and we, you know, that's been the, the recipe for our success. Um, when we've fallen behind, we have not recovered. So it's been even more important than ever this season to score first. And we're doing it more often. How about you, Paul? I mean, specifically, you know, I, I think James sort of expressed what we did right really well, but do you think that some of our early um, success was down to, a really high pressing system and Liverpool's inability to maintain possession and particularly play out from the back. Yeah, absolutely. Um, it was essential that they just in this three, four, three, it doesn't work for them. They can't long ball it. There was only Sturridge up front. He's a midget being marked by Purr. Uh, <laughs> the, the only way their system works is to play out from the back. And we've, we saw the pressure that Colo was under. Uh, you know, Khan's a very good player, but he was pressed the whole time by Alexis was on him. But w you think of the first three, the front three, and then you, you add in uh, Ozil who ran around like a lunatic. So you've got a first four pressing everything that moves. But you watch where... Cazorla and even Coughlin is, you, you think they're dropping back and kind of holding that midfielder, they're above center circle. For so much of that game in the first half, uh, particularly while we're on the front foot, 
you know, Coquelin's on the edge of the box. He's running into the box. He's pressing into the box. So you got the you got Per coming not just up to the halfway mark. He's pushing high into their half, intercepting Bellerin's intercepting. They're all moving back and forward. They're all in tandem. Now, of course, that leaves you very exposed. But if you're pushing Liverpool players back, then your man's still in front of you and you're still pressing. So this whole system is basically an eight, nine, ten-man pressing system. That's the brilliance of it. That's when it works well. It's also how it suddenly starts to break down when the energy changes, when we ran out of puff out about 10 or 15 minutes. That's why Santi didn't really know where he was when he probably should have been watching out for uh, Markovic dropping back and Coutinho Mm -hmm. running forward. Why Markovic and Coutinho were two against one against Coquelin why Koscielny was pushing Raheem, you know, suddenly that transition to when we lose our energy. So it's both the story of why we were so strong and also how we had five or ten minutes when we got ourselves into all sorts of soup because we didn't make that change of energy, that transition literally in how we were playing. But it was just brilliant watching how we pressurized those guys. They didn't know what hit them. No, and it- they were supposed to be doing that to us. It reminded me a little bit of what Everton struggled with this season. Everton's given away a lot of stupid goals trying to play out from the back the way Roberto Martinez likes his teams to do it, but they they give the ball away and gift goals. And Agent Colo was in full effect uh, against, you know, against Liverpool, well, for Liverpool, against us. But, you know, he he couldn't maintain possession. They couldn't pass out from the back. Um, You know, Mignolet kept the minute early, although I thought those saves are saves he should make. But... Ultimately, it was the fact that they didn't seem like they were prepared for us to press. And I read Naveen's tactical preview of the game, and he talked about the importance of us pressing. And, you know, Arsene Wenger definitely did tactics on this day. I know that's a debate. Does he do tactics? Well, on this day, he did, because we haven't pressed like that very often this season. Um, and it worked. And it was weird for me, because I've always sort of been of the opinion that as great as Coughlin has been, maybe what we need is still to go out this summer and get an upgrade on Coughlin, someone who can do what he does but passes better. And yesterday sort of shifted my opinion to say maybe Coughlin is the perfect fit for that. What we need is someone to replace Cazorla in that lineup, like a Schneiderlin, who can play alongside Cazorla, uh, alongside Coughlin, who is equally defensively astute and powerful but can pass a little bit more and move up the pitch a little more. Because I thought Cazorla was a little bit wasted yesterday, he, you did see his weaknesses at times, like for the Markovic chance, but he wasn't joining up with the attack as much until that one chance he had in the second half where he hit the post. Um, I think if you put a, a Schneiderlin and Coughlin in there sort of at the halfway line or just in the, in the opposition half to help with the press but can drop back, and then you let Ozil, Ramsey, uh, Sanchez, and Giroud sort of wreak havoc in a, in a free-flowing front four – you really have sort of an exciting combination of silk and steel. Um, I, I don't know why I said that. Pretend I didn't say silk and steel. <laughs> By the way, that is the name of my next romance novel. You can look for it at airports everywhere. Uh, silk and steel coming out this fall. Um, anyway, obviously, Paul gets the points again, so it's a pretty dominant start for him. Oh, this um, is absolutely blasphemous. No, I mean, he's, he's, just, he's run riot, James. I'm not going to lie to you. What's going on? It's, it's Ellie, time. I think, yes. I think just like... Begovic, you must have a new Lamborghini parked in your garage. Mm. Yeah, I do. I do. Uh, Paul, don't has worry, been... my my energies are about to flag just like Arsenal's. Yeah, oh, yeah you're you're is... about to hit that mid game, mid match lull. Um, mm. 
So let's talk about... But actually, uh, in all seriousness on that point, I think it's a little rash to perhaps say that in a game like this, whereby Cazorla was admittedly quiet, um, that Cazorla is now perhaps the player that we should be looking to replace purely on, on this one performance. And look, going forward as a, I think he's now 30 years of age, I do agree that we do need a Schneiderlin-like character that's able to either replace Coquelin or play alongside him um, in future games. And sure, there are certain prototypes or types of games in which that system will suit us better. But the way in which the game played out on Saturday is not, you know, is not exactly how we can necessarily stamp our mark on, on every single match going forward. I totally forward. agree. We've seen, we've seen exactly how integral Cazorla has been for the large majority of games. So I think you know, it, it's important to not be too quick to, to dismiss the importance that, that Cazorla can have, especially in a game in which his influence wasn't quite as necessary given how we were able to press so effectively from the front for the entire first half and then look to sit quite deep for large parts of the second half. Um, let me just no. let me just t pick up on that for one second though, because I want to I want to clarify. I'm not saying Cazorla should be replaced in the squad. I'm saying that for a long time we've been looking at the DM position and asking, do we have a DM? And then Coughlin comes in and we say, is Coughlin the future at DM? And I think what's more maybe becoming the more accurate question is, do we have that second deeper lying midfielder to play with Coughlin? And I'm not sure that Ramsey or Cazorla, or even Jack Wilshire, is a fit for that position the way we like to play. And especially if we're going to press, I don't think any of those guys are a fit for that position. So I'm not saying Cazorla should be replaced in the squad. I still think he can be an important 10 or even a wide player for us in the squad. I think against um, teams where we're not going to press, he can play that deeper-lying midfield position, although I'm not sure he's been fantastic at it this season I think his best performances came in the 10 when Ozil wasn't available. But I do think that the person playing alongside Coughlin, especially if we press, is maybe someone who's not at the team, at the club right now. And, and that's the question. So I wasn't particularly saying Cazorla is not a valuable player to us. He is. I'm just saying I'm not sure he's the player to play that position in that style. Um, and, the, and then that's where... You look and you say, I'm not sure it's Ramsey either. I'm not sure it's Jack Wilshire. I think all of those players are wasted a little bit in that position. They're, they're a little bit of a round peg in a square hole or square peg in a round hole, depending on which hole you're looking at. Um, and, you know, whatever hole you prefer, it's none of my business. And I, We I, don't judge. Yeah, we don't judge. We don't make judgments about the holes you prefer. Um, uh, moving on quickly, importantly. Quickly. Uh, let's get to the goals because they were awesome. Um <laughs> and we'll start with the first one because it came first. Uh, that's that's how the professionals do it, ladies and gentlemen. We'll keep it with Paul because he's taken a commanding lead, and I want James a chance yeah. to sort of yes, uh, feed off of his his genius, you know, yes, uh, genius. Kind, kind of like a, a Bellerin feeding off a Ramsey layoff. And that is what we saw with the first goal. Um, Paul, why don't you just wax poetic about Hector Bellerin? Uh, Hector Bellerin. Well, he's at that age and stage in life where he doesn't seem to know that scoring goals is actually difficult. I mean, you could see, working backwards from from the shot, that curler into the far side of the net. I mean, he just, he knew what he was doing. He knew the arc he was looking for. He's got that sweet left foot. Um, you know, working backwards from that, I mean, he Moreno... 
I don't know what he was thinking with the old. Uh, the one thing I'm not going to do is give away a penalty with my arms. You know. If yeah, that's... you know what's funny though. I as I watched it in real time. I was screaming, shoot. There definitely was a moment after he tricked his way past Moreno where you almost could see the light bulb go off in his head, and it was like, well, shit, I'm like eight yards out and no one's stopping me. I guess, like, I should shoot from here. (laughs) The red seat parted in a beautiful curving arc. Let me ask you this. Uh, It was kind of an inversion because he didn't overlap. He he ran into yeah. the channel, and we saw that a lot, the fullbacks running into the channel. Do you think that was something they had worked on because Ramsey pulled out wider there, and, and Bellerin on a couple of occasions made the inside run into the channel, not the overlapping run. Um, did yeah. that look like think, something we were targeting? I don't know, but I think what they very quickly learned, I mean, you hear in uh, psychological studies that if if you have a deck of cards which has more reds than whites, the, although you don't know it, your brain actually picks up that there's a little bit of a trend going one way or another. I think psychologically they realized they were having success through the middle, mm-hmm. despite the fact it was crowded, despite the fact that everybody was there because Alexis, you know, starting on the left but moving into the center, Ramsey clearly is going to – he actually – stayed out wide more than Alexis stayed out wide but um but of course he has a tendency to 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 cycle inwards rather than outwards uh you got Ozil uh who's going to create space in the middle but he's still starting from the middle you got Giroud who's not going to be running all over the place he's going to ping from the middle so we were pretty crowded in the middle but we were having a lot of joy against their back three because we were pulling them all over the place. So uh, I just think, you know, nothing better than quick movement and quick passing to destroy them through the middle. And that's what we pretty much did for, for, for the goals. I mean, uh, all of our success and all of our goals came through the middle. We kept doing what was working, I think. Yeah, and it, it doesn't hurt when, the, when they have uh, Colo Torre in the middle, among others. I mean, that was a pretty, yeah. pretty horrifically awful back four. We're back three to start. It, it was, and we really got at them. But uh, a bit like rattling the goalie early on, we rattled their back three early on, and I think that was part, really part of the success. They might have had a reasonable game if we'd gone at them at a normal intensity and given them a chance to settle. But, yeah, it, this was all new to Colo Torre, and by five minutes into it, he was thinking, um, oh, my God, I'm going to have one of those days, and he obliged. Well, it didn't hurt. I mean, Jordan Henderson was terrible, and, I, I you know, I think— if I didn't understand the Jordan Henderson decision. I thought he was going to be looking to be dominant in the middle, and they didn't take that option. No, it was, it was interesting. I mean, you know, to me, if you, are, if you are looking to play out from the back, then you need players in midfield who can collect from their back four and transition, and, and Liverpool had no one to do that. And every time Torre or Sacco or Chan was on the ball and they looked up, there was nowhere for there to pass to. I mean, it was brilliant the whole game through. Um, yeah. Just to throw in, do you know what I'm really glad I didn't see on Saturday? Brendan Rodgers standing in front of a microphone telling us all the brilliant decisions he made before that game. Yeah. Whereas he, as you talked about, he got absolutely outtacked by Arson. But did Arson stand up and tell you how clever he was? No, I mean, I think the interesting thing, though, is I, I really do wonder how important it was right before the international break that United beat Liverpool the way they did because I mm. do think that it was a blueprint that we yeah. followed a little bit. And I, I think that the timing of that game couldn't have been any better for us. 
not only in terms of Skirtle and Gerard, you know, not being unavailable and all of that, but it really set out a blueprint. For the first goal, James, um, there was a lot to like. One of the things that I really enjoyed that didn't get as much discussion as I think it should have was Danielson, I, I mean Coutinho, uh, standing there watching Bellerin score. He had a great view of it. How important do you think it was to the goal that Coutinho just, like, stopped playing football for five seconds after Moreno got beat? <laughs> I can't say I paid much at attention to Coutinho's uh, onward-looking presence during the goal, but I'll say it was even more important, which um, hasn't been discussed um, and I think deserves a lot of credit. That's called way... lobbying for points, but we'll allow it. <laughs> <laughs> um, no, but in, in all seriousness, was actually that move was, was, was very much started by Ozil's oh, extremely precise ball from so deep and his ability and awareness to see Ramsey from the right. I'm going to say something and... to you. I'm going to stop you, and I'm going to say something. It's going to be considered blasphemy. I've watched yeah. that ball like five times because I could not figure out the path or the flight of that ball. It made no sense to me. That was a deflection. That ball deflects in the midfield and deflects out to Ramsey. All right. Well, I'm gonna I'm gonna have to watch it another four or five I'm, times. I'm convinced because the the pass makes no sense if you watch the way he kicks it and the angle, and then it like takes a midfield right turn to Ramsey. Because I've been con I've been with you on that. I even wrote down at the time Ozil brilliant pass to find Ramsey, and then watched it like four more times because I could not understand it. All right, well, 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 we'll have to bring up the video footage. But, I mean, I, listen, either way, um, I'm, I'm, I'm sure Ramsey was the intended target, whether or not the initial pass was, was meant to be as precise as it was. Um, it certainly got there in the end and was what was started that move. And, you know, Bellerin, who's, who's so young, and to show such attacking impetus and, and confidence in the box, and as has been discussed, a lot of it is, was in large part down to Liverpool's quite amateurish defending Moreno in particular to open up his body in that way to not try and push him down the lane towards the and push him out to the right of the penalty box and go down the line is I mean it's it's Sunday league stuff and to be honest when I first saw it maybe because you know watching Hector and, and watching Arsenal you kind of almost naturally sort of embellish um, some of the things that our players do but I thought I thought better and had done like a quick step over and completely bamboozled um, Moreno, but I mean, it, it was still a nice little shimmy, and and to take it in centrally and then curl it in with his left foot, his weaker foot, as precisely as he did, was was quite remarkable for not only a player of his age, but a player of his position, and it really is um, exemplary of of the kind of talent that this player has. Not only, of course, defensively and the importance that he can he can play in this this team, but you know, with with the kind of pace he possesses, that attacking threat is so vital for us, and it's something I think we've missed. In our fullbacks for quite a quite a while, it was one of the biggest criticisms of Bakary Sanya, a player that I loved, um, who was phenomenal as a leader and um, from a defensive point of view, but who was extremely lackluster going forward. To now be able to have a player coming through that um, that has that combination of attacking and, and and defensive capabilities is is vital for us. And now you know, clearly, you know, as shown in that move, you know, the way in which he can he can pull off and, and make runs in behind down the flank, but also now to come inside and the interchange between our wingers and the way in which we, we like to create a dynamic and fluid structure going forward. It's, um, it's exciting to watch. And um, I think in part has been, you know, perhaps a, a large reason why Monreal, aside from his outstanding form, has, has played 
as consecutive as he has because of the combination between the more attacking um, fullback in, in Bellerin and the slightly more defensive-minded Monreal. I got I to gotta give it to you because I, I do think that the Ozil setup pass, whether intended or not, is overlooked as being crucial to that move. <clears throat> I don't think there's many players in the world that from the position Ozil was standing could find Ramsey. Whether he intended it or not, uh, he certainly did find him, and that was, that was the key to that move. So I am going to give the points to James there. The comeback um, is on. It the is on. is um, on. So let's talk I, about... I think that, uh, I'm sure it was a deflection. Yeah, it, it may have been, but I still do think that was the intended area, region of the pass. You know what? I encourage everyone to go watch that goal again and, and respond back to us. Let us know. Do you think that was deflected, or is that pass just a remarkable piece of individual skill? Let's talk about Ozo a little bit more because he deserves it. I took notes during the game, in part for preparation for this podcast, um, and actually entirely in preparation for this podcast. And in the beginning of the game, I wrote, Ozil doesn't look comfortable, not, a, not as good on the left, question mark, less interested on the left, question mark, because initially he, he did have some of that sort of lethargic, less involved appearance to him, but he started to grow in the match. And the next notes I had is Ozil starting to move into spaces, Ozil finding spaces where he wants to play, and then obviously he just improved minute by minute as the, as the match wore on. Um, I think once he discovered sort of that freedom to, to get away from just being pegged out wide on the left, he really improved. Then the free kick. So, James, we'll start with you. First of all, do you think that the free kick is... I mean, obviously Ozil hits it well. Do you think it is as big a Mignolet error as some have suggested, or is it just pure genius from the German? I'll come to that in a second, but I've, I've watched the Ozil pass mm -hmm. at least 10 times now. Mm -hmm. So I've doubled the viewings that you've, you've okay. had. And that ball is, aside from being absolute perfection, is 100% the intended pass that Ozil tried to make. It's not no a deflection, deflection at all. It's no so deflection strange, though, right? Like, doesn't he, he hits it with, like, his left, but it curves right. How does he do it's not that, it's, it's not I think that, he it's wraps not that his foot around it. He wraps his foot around it. I mean, it, it, it takes a dip and, you know, and it, it kind of levels out as it, as it comes to Ramsey. It re I mean, it honestly is an absolutely ma majestic it, If it's intended and if it doesn't deflect, it is one of the most well-controlled passes out wide. Because he doesn't it, – it's not it's – not, he doesn't hit across it to make it bend right. He, like, wraps his foot around it and bends it around the midfield. It's very strange. Let's move yeah, on. He, he gets enough height as well to lift it over the two Liverpool midfielders while also allowing it to come back down and, and literally settle on the ground before it reaches Ramsey. So, I mean, it, it's kind of, it, it's kind it truly of a is Tiger Woods over and around the trees kind of shot. The Tiger Woods shot now is three chips to get onto the green from 10 feet out. Um, uh <laughs> Arsenal. We can we can have a jeans around our ankles for as long as we want over this pass. But moving to the free kick. Moving to the free kick. I, I I'm, we are in Arsenal have now scored more goals from from set pieces than any other team in the Premier League. Having a threat from set pieces has been a huge revelation. Obviously, this one Ozil hits it perfectly. Give me a percentage. Percentage that it's Ozil genius and percentage that it's Mignolet error. Oh, um. I'm going to go 70-30, 70% Ozil genius in that, first of all, he, given that Mignolet has, has slif, shifted ever so slightly to his left, Ozil picks it out. He identifies that as, 
as a slight weakness in um, in Mignolet's positioning. And then the execution in itself, it's no, you know, it, it's not an easy thing at, at all to hit it right in that little square um, square area whereby Mignolet, having now moved over, um, it, it is unable to keep it out. Listen, as a top as a top class goalkeeper, you've got to make sure that you're covering that side. You've got to let the wall do your job. There's no doubt about that. Any you, can fan, I ask you a question though? Is he just convinced that Alexis is going to strike it, and he's trying to be a little too clever? And he says, you know what? Even though I have the wall there, I know the quality Alexis has. He's definitely going to hit it. I'm I'm going to cheat that way. Is the threat of Alexis what keeps him from properly covering? Because when they show it from the goal, the the behind the goal angle, he sees it late. It, you see it late because it doesn't curl over the wall; it curls to, around it. Um, do you think he he just it was the threat of Alexis and the quality of Alexis's free kicks that that had Mignolet convinced that's where it was going? No, I mean I don't I don't think it necessarily had all that much to do with Alexis at all because I think even from that position, if you want to go over the wall, I'd want my left footer taking it so it has that outswing going into the right corner really? anyway. Okay. Yeah, absolutely. On the right-hand side of 100% well, my left foot is taking that because, of, I mean, if he wraps his foot around it, it, it swerves out into the right right, right side of the netting, um, curving away from Mignolet's outstretched arm. As you see, when he bends it to the left, he has to almost shape it slightly outside the post and bring it back in. I think it, it you know, another reason why the execution of that is um, as strong as it is. But, um, you know, may, maybe having Alexis there as well, I guess if Alexa is taking it, he has to go around the wall. But um, as a goalkeeper, either way, you've you've got to let the wall do its job, and um, you you can't you can't allow that near post to um, to be left as open as it was. But I mean, as I've said, given that that was the case, for Ozil to spot it and then execute it as well as he did was um, was no easy task. And um, by God, was it a beautiful goal to watch. What about you, Paul? Per- give me your percentage. Percentage Ozil genius, percentage Mignolet error. Uh, I'd go 75-25. Um, you know, it, it's always tough for the For By the, the way, that is, that is what I call the prices right strategy. That I'll go is, one, $1, $451. That no, okay. no, that, points that right would there, have been 71-29. Uh, yeah, sorry. Okay. 71-29. We were told there'd be no math. All right, move on. Explain yourself. And, and then I'm going to explain to you uh, why it is more Ozil genius than Mignolet error. <clears throat> So, but you got to lump in three people. Per is obsessed with his positioning versus that out, outer post. I don't know why Mignolet, to be honest, doesn't notice what Per is up to because Per is absolutely convinced it's going to be Ozil swinging it the way he did. Are you suggesting but, this is a training ground free kick? Uh, kind of. Mm-hmm. Um, and I definitely, you see Alexis do the dummy. And whether Mignolet thought it was going to be Ozil going to his near post or Alexis going to his near post, Mignolet thought it was going near post. So uh, he had his mind made up what he was going to be defending against. But uh, I still don't think you can take it away from Ozil. It's a perfectly hit free kick. And I think almost any free kick needs a little bit of a, a flub from the keeper. If he goes the right way and moves his feet the right way, you know, it needs to be a world-stopping free kick, and there's only one of them every now and then. I, you always need the goalkeeper 
guessing slightly wrong, moving, being a little bit concerned, being whatever. And I think they forced it upon the keeper. Um, they they bluffed him, and that half step he took, you know, he wasn't even close to getting to what Ozil did. I thought it was, by and large, the credit goes to Ozil, but the boys did a nice job playing poker with him. Well, I'll, t- I'll tell you what. I-, I think on the free kick, it's just about 50-50. Um, the reality is you have to trust your wall, and you, you have to decide as a keeper it's not going in on the left side of the goal, or from the keeper's perspective, on the right side of the goal. That's his job, right? The wall has to prevent it from going in on, on his left. He has to prevent it from going in on his right. Having said I, that... I've got to say, I'm not sure that's right. You've got to trust the wall... To make if you it put so it that... over the wall and into the postage stamp, then God bless you, you deserve your goal. The keeper, the one thing as a keeper I think you have to say to yourself is it's not going in the open side of the net, right? I mean, that's that's your, that's your zone. I think all you can say is the wall is going to make it hard for the guy and, you know, i got to watch that top upper postage stamp and that's what he was watching. All right, well, well whether you say it's 50-50 or not, here's why you got to give Messett some credit. The way he receives the ball and touches it around uh, yeah. um, Sacco to avoid the tackle and get the free kick in the first place is a little moment of genius. And that genius sets up the opportunity for the free kick. The problem here is that the percentage that it is Mesodozo's skill versus Mignolet's uh, error when you combine it all together actually works out to 72-28 which is actually just going to give it to James. Um, it, it was close. Uh, like so he's clawed it back. We're tied. Republic around here. All right, we're, we're going to talk Alexis for a minute. Paul, you're not going to ask all this one up, are you? <laughs> Paul, Paul right, he's clawed right. it back. It's just, it's it, just the Markovic through pass to Raheem. I'll be fine. It's 2-2 at Newcastle. Um, so, so here's the deal. Sanchez scores... A brilliantly hit. It's almost like a half volley at that point goal. It was, it was a sensational goal. Paul, first of all, maybe a, a word or two about Ramsey's play to set up Sanchez, and then Sanchez's hit, and then just talk to me just a little bit about the the game Sanchez had because I think the thing I'm starting to realize about Alexis, and maybe this is what we just have to come to terms with. He is a totally different kind of player. We are a classical music team, and he is a jazz musician. You know, we are a symphony, and he is a solo artist. And and he he gives these bursts of individual genius. He's all energy and all effort. He doesn't always fit into what we're doing from a team ethic, but he always finds a way to influence the game. So a little bit about the goal, and then your just your thoughts on Sanchez's performance as a whole. Well, you've asked me to start with Ramsey, but I want to take it back one from that, which is that goal starts because Ozil first pressurizes in midfield, mm-hmm. yep. followed immediately by Cochrane, neither of which maybe Cochrane gets a touch on the ball, but he doesn't control the ball. Ozil doesn't touch the ball. It's not going to show up on anybody's stats. But those two guys throwing themselves, upping the pressure, uh, keeping it at the levels we saw on the, f- saw on the first 15 minutes 
they're the guys who forced the turnover, which was the whole rationale for our first half, at least while we had the energy. And, you know, remembering we were likely to run out of puff after the international break. That's exactly what happened in that kind of the 15 or 20 minutes between the first charge and our second wind. Well, this was part of our second wind. And that goal was all set up by Ozil uh, putting on the, the, the full press, uh, Cockland, and that's why I'd say it wasn't the first three or the first four guys. It was the first six guys. It doesn't work without Ozil doing it and then without Cockland pressing just as hard. That front-footedness uh, that makes the turnover. Ramsey gets hold of it, pings it into Alexis's feet, who turns beautifully. Um, you know, it was a really good pass from from Ramsey, but when you see a goal like that, it was a brilliant pass. It, had he not done anything with it, it was just another good pass. It's, that's the randomness of football. You know, Ozil's pass for Bellerin's was a great pass on any day, but it goes from good to brilliant depending on what Bellerin does with it. And in this case, I think what, uh, you know, Ramsey was the per- perfect arcing ball into um, Sanchez's feet, turns deliciously, great first touch, steadies himself, takes advantage of the time he has. And as somebody said, it was like it was teed, back to the golfing uh, analogy, it was teed that little bit with a little bit of drop onto his foot where he was able to come under it and kind of get that, that dip on the shot to take it over Mignolet. Uh, it was delicious. It was powerful. I take your point on the fact that he's he's a little different to what everybody else is doing in the team. But I think part of Arsene's success this year is to take the players he has, and after all, he went out of his way to get Sanchez, and make a team out of it. And it's kind of a bit of a Kelly's Heroes or a Dirty Dozen. You need those different characters and different ways of playing. Yes, it takes maybe away a little bit from the from the perfect harmony of the harmony of the team, but it gives you different looks and different different ways to upset a team that they're not going to defending. You can't fall into a rhythm of defending somebody like an Alexis Sanchez because he's going to do something that you didn't see coming mm-hmm. or that isn't fit, just as it isn't fitting into the, the a perfect pattern of attack. It doesn't fit into their perfect pattern of defense he's going to do something that's going to tear at the fabric of that defense and he did it a few times uh, on Saturday yeah I agree I think you know he is definitely a player that needs to adapt to the league and he, he, he's shown an ability to do that very quickly but I think a player like him is well suited to the league I think the bigger issue is he's a player that has to adapt to playing in our team but our team has to adapt to playing with him because he's not a quick passing possession style player. He he's he is a, a bit of a soloist. And I, I think we're seeing, especially in, in a game where we press and create quick transitions, how effective he can be. I mean, in ninety minutes he only played thirty six passes, but his influence was present throughout. And if you are gonna press, you can't ask for a player better than Alexis to, to create that pressure from the front. Um, but maybe more than anything, taking that point, he's the yin to to uh, Ozil's yang. A player who's too generous and a player in an Arsenal system who's maybe that little bit selfish. Uh, you know, I, I mean, we've been pulling our hair, hair out with Ozil to some degree last year and for for moments this year of him being too generous. 
but maybe that combination in particular uh, will be the thing where we have our, uh, for different reasons, Bergkamp and our Henri. Uh, it's not just two players on the field. Those two players in particular are the ones uh, on Saturday and in general who can up us to a new level. One arguably too selfish, one too generous. Yeah, I, I would say that, that the one thing you can definitely say about that goal is we don't have another player in our squad who would have struck the ball there. No. Um, every other player we have in that exact position would have looked to improve his position or find a teammate. And Alexis hit it because he knows he can score from there, and he did brilliantly. Pull the trigger. Um, yeah. James, what about you? What did you make of Sanchez's contribution, the, the goal and his overall contribution um, to the team? Is he – are we – you know, in the beginning of the season, we were sort of quote-unquote one-man team. He was doing it all himself and, and getting it done. Has he now found the space to fit into the team ethic where he can still do his individual thing, but the team sort of understands how to how to pivot around him a little bit? Um, so firstly, the goal. That was certainly my favorite goal of the four, all of which were beautiful and fantastic. They were all picture book goals, yeah. Um, I think in part that was due to um, the beautiful touch from Ramsey and um, his quick-witted, his, his speed of thought to play that ball in perfectly to Sanchez and then to just watch Sanchez thunderbust it um, past Mignolet, who I guess perhaps could have done a little bit better, but the way the ball was swerving and the speed he hit it with, um, it still would have required a top save to keep it out. Um, although I th- did think it was quite amusing that the one thing you don't do as a defender when you're up against Sanchez is you don't commit inside and allow him to cut back in on his right and create that space for himself, which Colo did um, with a plum. Um, so that certainly made it somewhat easier for Sanchez to create that space just outside the box. But as you say, I mean, he, there aren't many other players in this team. I'd say maybe Giroud in the kind of form he's in would perhaps have had a go from outside the box if it was on his left, but that's certainly up for debate. But agreed, I don't think there's really any other player in this um, side that would have been able to finish in the same way that Sanchez did. Although I did think it did, the ball, when he brought it back in, did take a nice little um, bounce off the turf and lifted it slightly so Sanchez could get the underside of his... um, could, could really connect with the underside of the ball, um, which is why he hit the ball as sweetly as he did. And also, I think it was just great to see Sanchez back on the score, score sheet, to be honest. Mm-hmm. Um, and then that relates to the way in which Sanchez has fitted into the side. And, you know, perhaps I think since we've seen the likes of Ozil coming back in the form that he's been in, the um, Giroud, etc., and, and, and Ramsey recently... Um, we haven't been quite as reliant on a player like Sanchez where a lot of our players gone directly through him. So he's, we've seen him very directly involved in everything we do. But obviously we have a much stronger ability to, to, to create output from a wide range of or, or diverse set of options from Gazzola playing the deeper role to, of course, Urza where a lot comes through to, to Ramsey when he's playing the way that um, he's been playing these last couple of games. Does Giroud, a player who's, who's in such a a rich vein of form um, in the centre of things. And, you know, sometimes that soloist attitude when we're playing as well as we are as a team, he doesn't, he doesn't necessarily um, implement himself as strongly as, as he would otherwise. Um, but that's often a good thing. I think we, we sometimes see that 
perhaps when Sanchez is a, is is a little quieter, we as a team are are playing well and playing playing with a lot of confidence, and we're not as as reliant on a player to sort of create something out of nothing. Whereas you know, in in a different game scenario under different dynamics, you sometimes have to just look to Alexis to to beat a couple of players and 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 to create something when when we're playing against very compact teams where we're not quite as um, as perfect with 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 our link up play and our and our part and our passing game, which naturally throughout the course of a season is is going to happen now and then. But of course, you know we talk about it all the time that that Duracell battery like um, work ethic from start to finish at, to be able to play two games for Chile, the amount of games he's played all season. I mean, I don't have the stats in front of me, but I wouldn't be surprised if he's racked up the most minutes in this Arsenal team. Um, to consistently harass and harry um, the wing, the equivalent wing back or um, opposing opposing defender, and and create pressure throughout the full ninety minutes to also be able to track back consistently when we when we sit back um, and play a little deeper, but also that ability to wriggle out of tight spots, not only in the opposition half. Um, but also when he picks up the ball deep in hour and a half, and, and listen, of course, there is a, sl- a slightly risky element to it, but I think we saw it, for example, against in the Spurs game, and we were really, when we were pressed deep, we really struggled to, um, to get out of those tight spots, and we kept losing, losing the ball, but what Alexis has the ability to do is he can shimmy left and right, and he, he, you often see him sort of circumventing a couple of players, drawing a foul, creating a bit of space and, and really relieving that pressure for us, which I think is so vital in um, the way we interchange from defence to attack. And often Alexis is, is then also the one that's able to crack, carry the ball. We saw on a couple, couple of occasions he's the one that starts the um, counter-attacks. And I think there was a couple of times where he was fouled, but Anthony Taylor didn't uh, didn't seem to call a free kick or um, he'd, he'd, broken, he'd broken free after... We've been under a decent amount of pressure for a, a small period of time, um, and perhaps a, a Henderson or, or, or a Liverpool midfielder had just come back and, and tracked back. But he's constantly a threat um, on the counter attack, and also when we're um, when we have a lot of the ball in 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 the opposition half. So I think he he has the um, the diversity in his play to be to create different types of threats depending on the way in which we're set up and depending on the sort of the game scenario and, and the in-match um, setup of the game, whether it is, you know, us constantly putting pressure on, on the opposition or if we're having to sit a little bit deeper. Um, and so I think that's a really integral aspect of his game. Something, for example, you can relate it to a Theo. You know, he, he's obviously a threat on the counter-attack, mm-hmm. but he's very reliant on a player like Ozil or or a Cazorla to, f- to find him with those runs. He's, he's not a player that can really carry it from deep. Someone like Alex perhaps, perhaps is. Um, but then also um, his ability in the final third to, to create that space and, and create chances is, 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 you know, is a whole other dimension for opposition defences to have to deal with. Yeah, I, I, I agree with everything you said. I, I'm going to give the points here to Paul because I think... As a violation of rules, James, I don't know that it is technically allowed to discuss everything in the entire universe related to the question in answering the question. I think that that that's a slight <laughs> breach of etiquette. <laughs> I thought. I, I thought. Frankly, I I answer the question 
as it was asked. Whereas yeah. Paul, who much like I normally would, had diverged away from answering the question. That's so, true. I mean, here That's I am, amused, Elliot. What what I would say is that we are also uh, we are also aiming for, <laughs> shall I say, a a. A time-appropriate podcast. And here you are wasting more time. James is a black hole gravitationally pulling every conceivable aspect of a point into itself. I'm just trying to give you a comprehensive answer. You what did. Do you, what, what you did, you my friend. Jesus. You I have mean, done it. Um, here we are. Okay. Uh, I'll, I'll keep my essays from 5,000 words to 2,500 in the future. Hey, look, you can go to my my erstwhile blog and, and see all the 5,000-word ex, uh, essays you'd like. Um, no, I, I, I think you make a lot of really, really important points there, and we will do a spin-off podcast about that answer just to cover them ones. in depth. But we're going to move on. I want to get to some of the larger topics of the match now, just some of the thing, the takeaways, because we're starting to run long. I mean, Giroud obviously scored a beautiful goal. We'll touch on Giroud very briefly at the end. But one of the things that happened, obviously we had two injury-enforced substitutions, which limited our options, both injuries proving, at least according to the manager, not to be significant. So we won't touch on those um, because I don't think we need to. But 72 minutes, he brings on Danny Welbeck. He leaves Theo Walcott on the bench. James, is this more further proof that Theo is gone or just circumstance and to to make sure the game is secure at that point I, I believe it's 3-1 and he wants to he he needs the work rate that Danny provides and can't afford the luxury of Theo Walcott fear not Elliot I won't bore you on this occasion you've I'll never bored short. me I never accused you of boring <laughs> me um no I mean I've said for a while Theo's on his way out there's just there's so few um sort of times in a game or match scenarios now where Walcott really fits what we're looking for. Perhaps when we're desperately looking for something new to bring to the sides and desperately looking for a goal is now really the, when we're chasing a game or a kind of League Cup-esque throwaway game or a game um, of, against a perhaps smaller opposition where we're comfortably leading is maybe when Theo is more likely to be drawn in for game time. But I, I just don't see it anymore. I mean, we've seen... I think it was Tottenham where Rosicki was played ahead of him. You've got Alex Oxlade-Chamberlain ahead of him. You've got Danny Welbeck ahead of him. Um, and even on Saturday, you effectively had the kind of ramsey Ursley um, combination ahead of him. So not to mention that we know. Not to mention that we know the manager will play Jack Wilshire in one of those positions as well. If if the absolutely, I mean, so. you know, somewhat on that point is Callum Chambers wasn't even able to get on the bench um, on Saturday. And we've now got Debushi, Arteta, um, Alex, and Jack all coming back. So I think, I don't know if you know, we want to once compliment the, is it Shad Forsyth or yep. the medical staff or whatever, but I mean, the depth of this team is as strong as it's, as it's been for a long, long time. And it, I, I'd hasten to add that it's probably the, s the strongest from a depth point of view of any team in the league. Um, so... Walcott's hand is very is very weak, certainly um, relative to um, the position he was on in when he was last negotiating his contract. And I'd be very very surprised if um, he was in this Arsenal squad come next season. Paul, I know you're a big Walcott fan. Let's put that to one side. Both of our opinions on Walcott to one side because I happen to think he's a talented player. But for the money he wants, for the role he has, for the depth we have, was Saturday just further evidence that 
stylistically or in the mind of the manager or for whatever the case is that he's just on his way out, the manager doesn't see him in the plans, or are you still more willing to see it just as circumstance in in that instance? What's your take on the Walcott situation, and did you see Saturday as being any further evidence one way or the other? Um, I guess I'm more pessimistic than optimistic that, yes, that's what it means, that uh, he just he's just getting crowded out. Um, but I'll make the case for the other side just for kicks. Um, right now, we don't need his goals because we're scoring them, but that's not always the case. And right now, we're comparing comeback Theo, who's basically had no minutes, instead of comparing Theo when he popped his ACL mm-hmm. and he was probably the best player in the squad scoring goals. You know, he'd just come back from a previous injury, I think, and was, has finally hit and hit top gear and was, you know, uh, basically hitting unstoppable form, scoring goals for fun, uh, being brilliant. And so, you know, you're comparing different Theos here. But I'm not sure he's got enough runway and enough minutes here to get back to the levels that would make it tough for the manager. It's not that tough for the manager right now. Welbeck was the right player to come on at 70 minutes. He, and if he wasn't coming on at 70 minutes, he was the right minute player to start this game instead of Ramsey. Um, so, it's you know, Oxlade-Chamberlain is going to have to play too. You can think, as we talked about, Ramsey's going to need minutes and somebody's going to get pushed out of the, the setup. Jack's going to want minutes, and we know Arson's going to look for them there. Something's got to give, and that's the... It's great saying two great players in every position, but that's not actually quite right. You need to have two great players that can play, but you don't need two players at every position when everybody's healthy. Something's got to give. Somebody's going to get pissed off, and somebody's going to want to move on, and I, I don't know that Arson has decided he doesn't want Theo. I think Theo will decide he doesn't want to be this far in the pecking order. And I'm not sure it's the money thing. I certainly, uh, I don't think on either side it's a money thing. I think it's a minutes thing on both sides. Yeah. Uh, Theo. Yeah. Go ahead. Go ahead. Go ahead. No, after you. Theo will want more money, but more than anything, he's going to want to maintain his position in the English game for England within the Premier League. He's not going to want to start falling further and further down the pecking order. And I don't know how he gets the minutes to have the form to show, you know, we haven't seen the best of Theo. Uh, You kind of think at 26, we've seen the best, but he's every time he's come back, he's got better again. And he's stronger, maybe a little faster than he was last time around, but he's not getting the minutes. I, you know what's funny? Sometimes I, I think you have to play dime store psychologist to analyze these things, and there may be a case of familiarity breeding contempt here. Theo's been at Arsenal for a long time. <clears throat> Arsene Menger has known him for a long time. I get the sense that the manager was frustrated at Theo using the very big leverage he had last time around and paid him more than he really wanted to. I don't think he's been rewarded with the performances that the money demanded. I think Theo's injuries obviously have been a reason, but you hear Arsene Wenger excuse players like Diaby or Wilshire or Ramsey for poor performances based on injury. You don't hear him do it for Theo as much. Um, and 
Additionally, some of those comments, like we've we've made contact with the embassy, those are more biting comments than he makes about other players. I think Arson at this point may just be a little sick of Theo, may feel he hasn't lived up to what he could have been, whether that's injury-related or not. Um, frustrated by the money he had to pay him last time around. And I think he's willing to cash in on him. Um, and I think James' point is is a valid one that there's just a lot of competition from players that I get the sense the manager would rather give the playing time to. I think he knows he has to find playing time for Welbeck and Oxlade-Chamberlain. And I think he'd rather give it to them than Theo Walcott. Um, I'm going to give the points to James here. But I want to add, actually, that I'm not sure it's even that he... Oh, oh, hang on, hang on to the po- hang wait. on to the points there. Yeah, wait a minute. If you add, if you add this, I may take the points away. <laughs> <laughs> okay, go, well, James. Go. Listen, points aside, um, I, I'm not even sure if it's you know perhaps it's just down to the phrasing, but I, I feel a need to try and give Danny and Alex m- more playing time. It's more that they fit the needs of this team and the way in which we look to adapt ourselves throughout the course of a game far better than a player like Theo does. Well, that's kind of what I mean. I mean, he wants to give them more right. playing time because they are a better, a better fit for the way well, we are playing, and and their contribution is more comprehensive. Right, and the important the, the important thing is that a player like Theo, who don't take me wrong, I think is a very effective player. Someone who, when he's one of the key members of an attacking trio, can be extremely dangerous and throughout the course of a season will definitely bag a, a number of goals and assists but now when you have a player like Alexis Sanchez on the opposite wing he's just you know he's he's, he's sort of just carried alongside the, re- the rest of the team and he's he, he the qualities that he now that he possesses the output that he provides is no longer as you know necessitated by by this team as it once was when we were lacking the kind of quality that we have now mm-hmm. um I, because of your insistence on disagreeing with me, I'm going to give the points back to Paul. Um, so we're going to move on. Let's let's start to wrap up. We, we For were you really and long. your shady games over here, you know, you guys. I mean, not you know, not only is there one Lamborghini in that garage. Do, do you well, want me to, do you want me to give double points to Paul? Keep talking. You're talking <laughs> what, what, what me into it. Alongside that Lambo, yeah, Elliot. Um, well, you let's, let's Porsche. You know, what let, are we? What are we? Very cool. Let's talk about very refereeing cool. then. Um, so really quickly, James, and and I want to get to sort of quick hits now. So let's try to keep it quick because we are running long, and this game deserves it because it was fantastic. Well, you know but me, I'm, I'm quick hits, left, right, and center. You are nothing if not quick. Um, I've heard that. Uh, so, <laughs> so Anthony Taylor. We criticize him a lot. I thought he was mostly good. The two big calls um, that he had to make, the penalty decision I think was accurate. The one thing that the Liverpool fans I think feel hard done by is Bellerin not getting a second yellow card. Real quick, should it have been a second yellow and a sending off for Bellerin? Yes, and I don't think Anthony Taylor actually had a particularly bad game, although I was... (laughs) as seems to be the case now. Maybe it's just a perception of how generally dreadful the refereeing standard has been this entire season. There were still a number of Arsenal fans that seemed to have perceived Anthony Taylor's performance as being you know, out- outrageously poor, which I didn't quite see. I think there were a few times when I felt on the counter, for example, Alexis had been shoved over and should have definitely been awarded a free well, kick. Well, the but... big one, the big one was where Alexis nicked the ball off someone and it's escaping me right now. It might have been Emre Chan, I'm not sure, but and he would have been clear away. It might have been Henderson. 
and he he poked the ball between his legs. Yeah, it was Henderson, I think, and Henderson just went to ground. Um, right. And he and called also, he called a foul, and it wasn't. But I mean, th- those kind of calls happen every game, you know. Sure. No, absolutely. And and listen, the big call was Bellerin not being sent off because I think we would have all been quite nervy having just conceded with 15 minutes to go to be down to 10 men. And frankly, I remember Flamini coming in with a really heavy challenge only a few minutes after coming on. He definitely raised his studs and looked like it should definitely have been a yellow card, but he um, he managed to avoid being put in the book. So Yeah, that was a tra- um, traditional so was- Flamini. So, so your, your takeaway, though, is that Liverpool are probably right. They, we probably got lucky with Bellerin staying on. I don't even think it's worth discussing Chan's second yellow. That, to me, I, I know people That's are saying he's, he's slipped. But he's, I still feel, look, maybe he slipped. But if you watch it, before the slip, he is diving in from behind. And only bad things can happen oh, he, doing he lost his He lost his footing slightly with his left foot. But he's right. still swinging around with his right. And his, from his behind. Legs and slightly it's high. Raised, and I mean, yes. he's never getting the ball. I mean, he's, he's literally a couple of seconds after um, Welbeck has released the ball. So it's, it's a reckless and stupid challenge. And, you, you know, players, players know when a challenge is bad. And Welbeck, who generally doesn't react that way, had a momentary reaction like he was going to go after Chan. He knew that was a dangerous challenge. Um, and it seemed to be revenge for that. Uh, yes, he did him on the sideline. Nutmeg, yes. back heel that Welbeck, you know, Chan likes to think he's the skilled player. And I think that bruised his ego. Yeah, that's a great call out, Paul. So, so real quick, Paul. Um, the Bellerin uh, penalty and, and second yellow, no no argument that's a penalty, and also think it should have been a second yellow, or you think the touch was heavy and maybe I, it's just I, a foul? I honestly think that was good refereeing on Bellerin. It's marginal, but if a penalty isn't bad enough punishment, it wasn't a dirty tackle. Um, he was kind of going away from goal, um, and, uh, you know, what's... In in midfield, that's a yellow in the box. Uh, when it's a second yellow, I, I, if it had been the other way around, I would have understood it. So I think it's it could go either way. I thought it was good refereeing. You want to keep players on the field if it's not dirty, if it's not cynical, and if the guy's been adequately punished, and he had been. I'll give it to James for uh, honesty. Jesus. Because um, it's probably second yellow. You, you know, just quickly, and we don't have to discuss this, I'm just going to make this point. I think Bellerin has been a revelation. And, um, he, uh, you know, what he did scoring the opening goal means that it was a brilliant game for him because that first goal is the most important, of course. I do think we're, we still see some, some youth-related errors from him. This is the second game now we've seen where he's very fortunate not to have gotten a second yellow that could have put us in a very bad situation. Um you know, probably should have been sent off against United as well. I believe it was United where he was very fortunate to to duck a second yellow card. Um, and he does still tend to have some strange positioning issues out out on the wing. But all, all in all, I mean, based on his age, his performances have still been revelatory. And I I don't want to sound like I'm being overly critical. So. The second half, just really quickly, a friend of mine who is a very well-known Twitter account and and podcaster, but I won't mention him by name, um, texted me that, you know, he knows it's ridiculous, but he was kind of annoyed by our second half performance. Paul, second half, professional approach to a 3-0 lead or a little lethargic and self-congratulatory? Can I come up with a third option? Yeah, go for it. I think they were tired. 
Yeah. Uh, I think they were realistic. I think they played within themselves. I think they knew they were 3-0 up. It's not on them. Uh, you know, we remember the invincible seasons, the invincible season, as if we went out there and we torched everybody we played. That's not what happened. Good teams find ways to win. And when you're 3-0 up, don't be stupid. And the other thing that needs to be taken into account is Rodgers changed completely how they played. They went from a back three to a back four, much more solid. He decided he didn't want to make, have his team make him look like a fool. So they played what they were doing. The easy wins weren't there for us. They just pressurized them and they'll, they'll cough up the ball. Mm-hmm. tactic that we had in the first, you know it was all different it was all changed we th- were still solid we were still going to get chances do you think also i mean the the fact that liverpool changed formation i, I mean obviously that's going to cause you a, a difficult a different problem to solve i mean do you think the way we played in the second half was by design or was by reaction or a little bit of both uh i think by reaction mm-hmm. i mean by de- uh, uh, you know, the design part of it is we were only going to have so much energy. You could have anticipated a slow start to this game, us looking a little bit off the pace, all sorts of things. You know, uh, players were delayed getting back um, to uh, to Colney after the international break. Um, I, I think a lull in the middle of the first half and a quieter second half were we're always on the cards, so well, it, it was. Okay. A re- I don't think you designed to, to to have a quiet, quieter second half, but that's a reality of it. That the, that the legs would go a little bit, and uh, l- let's face it, it was up to them to prove that they could get the goals. Yeah, no, that uh, look, I I think the onus was on them. Let me, let me ask you this, uh, James. Slightly different question. So. By virtue of the way we played the second half, we had more counterattacking opportunities. I thought both teams defended poorly in their own half. I think they we look we we both looked like we were a little bit too easy to break down our own half. But the second half we had counterattacking options. Um, we've been pretty poor on the counterattack this season, and it, it's strange with players who are as technical and as gifted as we are. But our players seem to miss. That final ball. There were a number of times on the counter in the second half where Sanchez missed a, the 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 player he should have found on the counter, or, or Ramsey did. What um, what do you think about our counterattack, and why do you think it is that we struggle to to play the right ball or 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 find the finishing move that's needed on the counterattack? What 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 do you think is the cause of our our struggles on the counter? Well, firstly. I'm not surprised to find that Tim found something to be critical of. Oh, you know what? Um, don't 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 do that. <laughs> don't do that. Don't do that. Um, <laughs> but secondly, I think we're looking to be a little overly critical in general. In that, firstly, playing a counter-attacking brand of football is no easy task. You've got to be extremely precise on the counter-attack. Things have to. You're 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 changing from one half to the next, with, at, moving at incredible speeds. You're looking to play long-ranging passes over long distances, and you, you know everything has to be pinpoint perfect. So naturally, I think you're going to see a lot of any counter-attacking team that you watch in world football is probably going to fail to um, accomplish the exact goal of of each counter-attack more often than more often than not, just because it's it's a 
difficult art to master. I mean, you know, if you look at the players we have, you look at Mesut, you, you know, he's the perfect type of player to, to have on the counter-attack, to spot those types of balls. I mean, Cazorla too, and then but, but Ramsey, with his cases. Ramsey and Sanchez seem to struggle. I mean, is it? Could I you make I, the listen, argument that I, I, that maybe we've struggled a little bit? I mean, we did struggle against Tottenham, but we've we've seen games where you know I think it was the, the Swansea the goal when we lost at Swansea, but you know the goal we scored was a, a perfect example of strong, powerful uh, counter attacking football on a on a day when we. Well, didn't I was play just going to ask: well. Do you think the one area where we see Wilshire and Walcott not being in the side is that they might be two of our most effective? I think Wilshire I is as good Wil- as anyone distributing on the counter, and and Walcott obviously with his pace and direct running is fantastic on the counter as well. Maybe, but then. I agree with Wilshire, but the problem with Walcott is is he's somewhat obsolete on the counter too because he's he's not able to actually carry the ball in the counter attack. So he's great at he's he's great to have as the as the player that's on the end of a counter attack. But he you, you can't always plan your counter attack to specifically have Walcott always being on on the finishing touch. You that's see with fair. a player like Alex Oxlade Chamberlain or Sanchez, they've sometimes got to be the player that comes deep and carries the ball and then also be. At the end of that same move, so I think that's where Walcott struggles a little bit. We've but, seen but plenty of times where that he's lost the ball, the ball on the counterattack. I think we have players that want to carry the ball through the counterattack more than we used to, instead of quick passing to to players on the run. Uh, is there a little bit of Gervinho in Welbeck these days? I mean, he's so fast, he's so powerful, he's 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 so difficult to track, but he just doesn't seem to find the final ball enough. Right now, yeah, he's, it, you know the the one aspect of his game, Welbeck, that needs improving certainly is is his end product, and by that I mean both his finishing and also his final ball. There's there's no denying that, um, but I think we're all at this point quite cognizantly aware of um, that slight flaw to his game, which you hope is something that that can be improved um, over a little bit more time. But even even still, it's not. It's not dreadful. I mean, he's still, you know, he's bagged quite a few goals for the England national side. He's come, he's, he's come up with a few important goals for us. And I don't think um, he's expected to, as such, to necessarily always be bringing in that final product because he, he's so effective in the other aspects of his game that he brings to the side. Um, but, yeah, no, I, I do agree that he is somewhat inefficient sometimes in the final third with um, when he has um, opportunities or has the ability to... Um, at least try and find an open man. Um, um, but listen, I think just very quickly on, on the way in which you played in yes, that please. second half, you have, to, you have to, I think, respect the in-game management as well of, um, of the side because we can look to plenty of games. We look, you can look to Newcastle of way back. You can look to the Anderlecht game this season. You can even look a little bit to the Monaco game at home where we, where we skip, score that first goal. And I can assure you, I and I'm, I'm, I'm confident that you know, 99% of all Arsenal fans were, were in that moment desperately asking us to push forward and grab that second. And you, As a fan, you want to see the team constantly playing that excellent attacking brand of football and uh, constantly putting pressure on, on the opposition side. But when it comes down to it, at the end result, it's far more important to to play out the rest of the game in a way in which that gives you the highest probability of coming out with the three points. And having already scored those three goals, I actually think we defended quite well. I'm not. I don't entirely agree that we looked really shaky at the back in that second half because the chances they created um, were mostly reduced to shots from from distance. Chan had a couple skied over the bar, and also, I mean, he had that one shot that Ospina parried. 
outside of Sterling managing to beat Bellerin and win the penalty, they, Liverpool didn't really create a, a chance where I would have said that they, they should have scored. In fact, I think we had the better chances in the second half because Giroud had that header from the Ozil cross that was excellently saved. Cazorla hit the post. Cazorla hit the post. Yeah. And, you know, we haven't even mentioned that Giroud's excellent finish to score the fourth at the end I of the I was about to get to that, so l- let's wrap it up. We'll hit. I mean, we're running really long, but it was a great match, so, you know, we want to talk about it for a long period of time. Um. I'll tell you what. I'm gonna give. I'm gonna give James the points here because. What? Well, I didn't I, say anything. No, I challenged him more with my questions, and and he answered them in a really articulate uh, and effective way. Yours was more of a softball, Paul. I, I didn't mean, say anything. No. Yours yeah, was, you went. You went for. You went for a whole new option as well, Paul. You didn't even. I mean, listen, Paul. You, you've got. You've got off the rails, mate. People. Flying people. Fuck. Please, for God's sakes. Um. All right. Look, it's it's a tight one now. We're we're gonna we're gonna get to two last questions and the, the first one. Really short answers here. So James, we'll stay with you quickly. Giroud's goal. Uh, what what impressed you most about it? Um. Well, it exemplified all of what Giroud's been excellent at. Um. In his current form, uh, it was a goal kick from Ospina. He knocked it down excellently to Sanchez, carried on forward, made the run forward. And um, I thought not only was his touch excellent when he took the ball, but also the way in which he, he let the ball continue on in, into his stride as he, he sort of let it through his legs, brought it onto his left, um, cut inside. And then, I mean, the finish was, was excellent. And I think what was interesting about that finish is I'm not sure last season if we would have seen him demonstrate that that amount of confidence um, to strike the ball from that distance and um, bury it in the fashion that he did. Because I think not only was his chance conversion obviously a lot lower last year, part of that was also because of his consistent determination to to be the provider of a lot of, um, you know, when we had the ball in 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 attacking opposite attacking positions and he didn't necessarily exemplify that sort of selfishness to to really take any any chance or half chance that was presented to him and I think we're seeing a lot more of that um, and as a result I think his confidence has improved and um, his finishing has has really been taken to the next level. Um, what about what about you, Paul? I mean, it I I think James hits on a really important point there, by the way, which is. Two seasons ago or last season, Giroud would have looked for a teammate, held the ball up, stopped, waited. Giroud this season is doing the two things that I, I wanted to see him do more of and criticized him for excessively prior to this, which is he's finishing his chances, but also he's showing that predatory goal-scoring instinct that you want your center forward to show. He wants to score goals, and he believes he can score goals. Um, you know, And I, I think that that has made all the difference. Is he, but my, I guess a question for you, James, to sort of focus on, uh, Paul, to kind of focus on here would not only be what you thought of the goal and what was most impressive about it, but is Giroud sort of the classic confidence player when he's confident he's, you know, he's going to play well and when he's not confident he's going to play poorly or is it just a case that he's improving year over year, game over game? I, You know, uh, it's a bit of both, but I think it's more the latter. I don't think... He's fragile in confidence, but, you know, he's new to all of this. I know he's 28, but he hasn't been at these levels in this league, uh, you know, in, uh, in arguably the biggest league in the world. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, he only had a season or so at the top in Ligue 1. Uh, he was in Ligue 2 or Ligue 3, 
um, for the le- for the years leading up to it. So, um, who wouldn't need the confidence of it? I don't know if that quite makes him a confidence player in the sense that he's up and then he's down. I haven't seen a lot of down with him. Um, the one thing I like about confidence that I'd add to your other points is he's he's a lot faster when he's confident in the sense that. Uh, he may actually be faster. He may have made may have worked on his power and his burst uh, while he was out injured. Uh, but if you look at his last two goals, the one for France where uh, he breaks through into the box and he torches the guy he's on, mm-hmm. you know he he's already running at that point. His first gear or two is slow and will always be slow. But in in the the goal against France, he bursts into the box and there's no catching him. In this goal, he starts it in midfield with the header out to Alexis and then he's on the run. Once Giroud's at a gallop, his fourth, fifth and sixth gear, as we've talked about before, is pretty damn decent. And yes, he cuts back inside, but he cuts back in at at pace, confident, uh, you know, at, at full gallop. And nobody's getting near him. So I think one of the benefits we're seeing with confidence is he's making stronger runs, confident in himself, not looking for other people to lay it off. And so so he can put his head down and motor. And, you know, pace becomes less of an issue. People are not catching him up as often as they did in the past. Yeah, I think that's a good point. I mean, I think the one incident where you'd say he's he's kind of a confidence player is the home – home leg against Monaco where he misses that first easy chance and then the game went completely off the rails for him. But there, <clears throat> there's no denying that, that he's improved in every aspect of his game. And I, I got to give the points to James here for one reason. I think I think you hit on the thing for me, James, that is the, the most important thing from that goal. It's not just the finish. It's the confidence to take the shot there. And he wouldn't have done it in the past. And, you know, we want we want him doing that sort of thing. We used to make fun of him, you know, a couple seasons ago. He wouldn't shoot from six yards out, but he'd try half volleys from 30 yards out. You know, now he seems to have really decided he can score and, and knows knows how to finish from, from good positions. Um, we've got two last little things to get to, and I promise for those of you who even made it this far, uh, our future podcast will be at the one-hour mark and below, not the 90-minute runtime that we're looking at for this one. But I appreciate those of you who are still with us to find out who's going to win this exciting matchup. Um, last two quick questions. Paul, I think what made Saturday so rewarding is we saw two things. Our stars sparkled. Alexis Sanchez looked every bit of world-class player. Mesut Ozil looked every bit of 42 million pound player. Our stars were magnificent. But equally, our unheralded players, who at the beginning of the season we wouldn't have expected to be in the team, Hector Bayerin and... Uh, Stop that. Hector Bellerin and Francis Coughlin were magnificent. Which is more important right now to this team? The stars performing at star level finally at the same time together or the unheralded players contributing at a level we would not have expected? And please don't say both. Oh, for God's <laughs> sakes. All right, James, you get the point. Moving on. No, quickly. Which which has been more um, important this the run, the unheralded impo- players or the stars? I think it's more important that the stars step up because when they have big shoulders and they take on the responsibility, that's when the younger players can can feel their place in the team. Younger players want to look up. The one, you, you, we all remember the quotes about Fabregas talking about 
coming into a dressing room with mm. Bergkamp and Henri, etc., and look at what happened in his career. Oh, God. His career within <laughs> Arsenal till it all went terrible. Um, <laughs> and, you know, that's what Be- Bellerin doesn't want to be the best player in the team. I know he does, but he doesn't really. He wants to become the best player in the team over time. He wants to learn from these guys. He wants to steal tricks from better players. None of them want to be the best team. No, the best of course. Player. I mean, Francis Coughlin wakes up every day and says, oh, my gosh, I'm playing in the same midfield as Mesut Ozil. Um, <laughs> I mean, that, exactly. you're, you're absolutely right about that. James, what about you, though? In terms of importance to the team, is it the stars performing at the level that they should or the unheralded players performing at a level we never expected? It's definitely the stars performing at the level that they should because those are the players that can change games. But also I think we talk a lot about the importance of players that haven't been playing or players that are going through a tough patch or maybe inexperienced players finding it a lot easier to find their feet and to find the kind of forms of form that we expect from them when they're part of a team that's already playing with a lot of confidence and playing well. We talk a lot about this whole 4-1-4-1 formation nonsense at the beginning of the season and, and how that was perhaps partly down to a slight demise at the beginning. But I'd be pretty confident that even if we did set up some sort of 4-1-4-1, which, by the way, I don't really think is actually all that different to this the 4-2-3-1 that we're prospering from now anyway, um, but with the same players, I think we'd, we'd look a lot better, a, a much stronger side because a lot of the confidence that we breed and the, the dynamism and the fluidity and the, um, the strength in our attacking play especially comes down to our top performers performing at that high level. Yeah. And I mean, I guess I would just go the other way in this one respect. I would say that over the last seven or eight seasons, we've always had some stars that have performed at star levels, whether they were Cesc Fabregas or Robin Van Persie, you know, whoever it was, the team's been carried a little bit by stars, but it hasn't taken the next step up because the, the role players have been so poor. And I think Francis Coughlin in particular, I mean, oh, oh, but to have had him in the team playing this way at the start of the season, I think what he's done and what Be- Bellerin has done in the absence of Debushi has allowed us to benefit from the stars playing the way they did because even if Ozil and Sanchez played at this level, uh, in the absence of performances like Coughlin's and Bellerin's, I don't think the results would match their performances. Um, final question, and again, you can't say both, um, and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to tie the points into that question and this one because you guys kind of answered the same way to that last question, which was clever. You know what? Let's just score that a draw. There we go. Last question. Here we go. Um, one or the other can't have it both ways. Forget the FA Cup for a minute. This season, domestically and in Europe, a case of what should have been, what could have been, lamenting missed opportunity, or a case of excitement for what the future holds? Uh, Paul, let's start with you. Uh, You could certainly go the lamenting way, but my personal feeling is excitement. You know, sequence is important too. Last year we started great led the league and then tailed down uh, and then maybe saved it towards the end. But we've had too many seasons where people have said or been able to say, 
that, uh, yeah, we look good for two-thirds of the season and now tail off. And we've changed that story. So you can't come out of this year without saying you feel optimistic. Well, somebody can, but there's always somebody. You're going to come out of this season uh, presuming things go the way they do. I mean, we got, whatever, eight games, seven games to go. Uh, assuming we keep up this level of play and at least maintain this strength, you've got to come out of this feeling optimistic, positive, going into the summer, thinking we're you know we're now instead of being two players short, we're maybe one player short, um, and there's really and really that's a second player to uh, to balance out Cockalan to give us options mm-hmm. in that position. We actually have a player now. Totally agree. Um, so. Optimism, uh, looking forward. Yes, you can do the what could have been, uh, but we're going to finish strong. We're going to feel good. Our our season ramped up. It takes us into a summer where there isn't a major tournament. We just need uh, if we don't lose anybody important. We just need one or two good signings, um, and we're we know what the template is for next year. So optimism overall. How about you, James? Is it a case of what should have and could have been, or is it a case of what's going to be? You know what, Elliot? I'm going to turn the tables. I'm going to deduct points from whatever sneaky points you've been adding to yourself. Um, (laughs) (laughs) Because these things don't need to be mutually exclusive. Um, (laughs) I like it. Disagree with the premise. That's a good start. (laughs) (laughs) The poor no, bastard. <laughs> listen, it's naturally it's it's difficult to look at the season because, and and not think and not have both feelings and both sentiments directed towards it because oh we 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 talk a lot about progress and um, how how the team is shaped and we we talk a lot about this idea of sort of short termism in football and and this recency bias that we see so often in football. Um, so you know, looking ahead without any doubt, you you can't but feel optimistic and you. And um, that's the obvious answer for me. You know, I've I've been optimistic from, <laughs> I think, uh, and certainly from at least January with with regards to the squad. And I think moving forward, obviously, the importance for any team and any squad and any um, any club as an organisation has got to be the long term prospects and the long term um, benefits of the team over any sort of short term. Um, needs and desires that we that we have as fans. So yes, I think now we're looking, we're probably looking at a side that has perhaps breached that somewhat watershed moment. Trophies aside and, and trophy drought aside, of of a team that's now really looking to step into being a team that can perhaps be brandished a, alongside some of the other um, top world class uh, sides in European football. Um, I think that obviously will only ever come to the fruition or that will only ever be labelled with us once we actually significantly begin to progress within the Champions League. Um, I'm not sure if we can, if if it's ever possible, at least in the very near future, to really reach the echelons of, of the Barcelonas and Real Madrids of this world because that in itself is just is, is a huge leap to make. But I, I do think moving forward now, we're looking at a team that, that should be and probably will be challenging right at the top of this table quite consistently over the next few years. But with that being said, I think this season was a really great opportunity to, to actually look to win this league title because I don't think Chelsea are anywhere near as good as um, a lot of the pundits or, um, as Paul would refer to them as, cundits. Um, 
um, at, you know, sort of think of the Chelsea side. And we really had a great opportunity, probably once again, uh, to win this league, um, especially given the way Chelsea are now faltering. But unfortunately, it's, um, it's out of our hands, given how slow we were at the start of the season. I, I think you make a lot of important points there. And I, and I think what would tilt this slightly towards what could have been in lamentation for me is Europe because you just don't get an invitation to progress to the quarterfinals more than we had this year, even screwing up the group stage as we did. And we hit the quarterfinals at a time when we really were starting to click. And to not get past Monaco is a huge disappointment, especially given the way the draw shook out, because I think in our current form, the way we're playing, we could have beaten Juventus. And given the cushion we now have domestically in the top four, I think you could say the top four is probably sealed it would have been the best chance ever to pour all of our focus into the Champions League uh, quarterfinals, not worrying excessively about the domestic competition because top four is just about assured. So that's a real case of what should have and could have been. I have a little more sympathy domestically because I think coming out of a World Cup is a little bit of a toss-up. And I think... You know, we we had some difficult circumstances there. I do think also that we made our life more difficult by not adding in the the two areas that we know we needed to. But ultimately, of course, the points go to Paul because James disagreed with the premise of my question. Yes, he did. Um, I think we should leave it there, given that it's just the scant 98 minutes that we've been recording now. Um, But we'll add up the points for James. 13 points for Paul. Wait a minute. Let me double check. 16, 16 points. <sighs> and that makes your winner for today's podcast, Elliot, Elliot with oh, 21 Jesus. points. <laughs> it was um, it was a good so effort, and, and I have to credit both of you. I thought you did a fantastic job. But in, in, a, in a pod that ran a little bit long, I had the staying power and the stamina, which is what I've been known for for quite some time. Um, We should leave it there. It was a spectacular victory, one that's caused us to go on far too long. We will be much more uh, brief and to the point next time, uh, especially given that it's just Burnley at home. I think top four is wrapped up. Now it's just a question of how far can we push. We'll see. Uh, It's going to be interesting. Of course, there's an FA Cup semifinal still ahead, and hopefully Liverpool get bounced by Blackburn midweek. And... uh, I'm happy to have the easiest path possible to another trophy. As always, you should follow these wonderful, eloquent, articulate, and, shall I say, slightly verbose individuals on Twitter. Um, The first of them is James. You can find him at GoonerFanatic49. James, a pleasure. Thanks for competing. We have some great parting gifts for you. Cheers. A pleasure. Yes, a pleasure. I hope uh, you, Paul, and my dear listener have all had a wonderful weekend. Um, Thank you. And may you enjoy the rest of your wonderful week after a glowing victory at the Emirates. Thank you, James. That was a a wonderful epilogue to the podcast. And as always, um, Paul, pausing in my pants, a heroic effort, not a victory. We have some wonderful parting gifts for you as well. But, Paul, thanks for coming on. Thank you very much. Cash. Uh, I deal in cash, pretty much exclusively cash. Cash, got it. Uh, my name is Elliot Smith. I am your winner today. You can block me on Twitter, Yankee Gunner. Thank you for hanging in there with us. As I said, next time, uh, we'll probably do like a little five-minute Burnley podcast to make up for this. Uh, that's coming up next weekend. Until then, enjoy the midweek football. Root hard for Blackburn in the FA Cup. We'll talk to you next weekend. Cheers. Go Blackburn.
Everyone is talking about magnesium. It's all you hear about. But why? What do we know about magnesium? Well, magnesium is the number one mineral that 75% of Americans are deficient in. If you are a woman over 35, magnesium will help you rediscover balance, energy, and vitality. Magnesium supports more than 300 enzymatic reactions in your body, including those involved in hormonal balance. From functional medicine doctors to mental well-being and female hormone experts, we all know that magnesium is the one mineral to improve all aspects of well-being and health. But which one? Magnesium Breakthrough from Bioptimizers. The trusted choice recommended by leading experts with seven best-absorbed forms of magnesium to ensure your body receives the support it needs for overall well-being. Go to bioptimizers.com slash balance today and use code BALANCE10 for 10% off. Support your journey to wellness at B-I-O-P-T-I-M-I-Z-E-R-S dot com forward slash balance. Magnesium Breakthrough from Bioptimizers, your foundation to optimal health and vitality.